as we continue in our Easter celebration, I'm just, I am overwhelmed with everything that, um, um, that happened on this side of the resurrection. I got to be honest with you. As a matter of fact, if you were in my class this past Wednesday night, or if you were present in our staff meeting on Tuesday, which I know many of you were not present in that staff meeting, right? Or on the board, I shared with uh, you this amazing idea that has just got me gripped. Um, and and I, I think I want to share it with you this morning because this, this idea just causes me to be so passionate about what Jesus did for us. It is 40 days in between the resurrection of Christ and his ascension. 40 days. So much of our faith centers around the resurrection of Christ and what happened 40 days in between. It's, it really is amazing. And because without the resurrection of Christ, Jesus just would have been a, another prophet. Without the resurrection of Christ, then we wouldn't have had the New Testament because the disciples would have, wouldn't have gone on to write the good news because there wouldn't be any good news. Without the resurrection of Christ, you and I wouldn't have a hope for tomorrow because it's because of his resurrection, right, that, that he said he was going to come back after he was dead. And he did. He did it within his own power, through the power of the Holy Spirit. He came again. And so you and I, we get to know, we get to believe, we, can, we get to have the hope that because Christ did it and he said that he was coming back for you and I, that that you and I can believe in that promise, we can have that same hope for a new tomorrow, for a good tomorrow, for a good day after tomorrow, and for a good eternity. The Bible tells us that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in? That's right. That's right. And, and so the resurrection, if you take the resurrection out of Christianity, we all fall apart. But when you put the resurrection in Christianity, it all comes together. <clears throat> now, over the course of the 40 days, so many wonderful things happened. So many wonderful things happened that it, it's hard to... It's hard to, to look at all of them at once. And so uh, I, I feel like I, I want to talk to you this morning about one of those pivotal conversations that happened just after the resurrection, about eight days after the resurrection. I want to I talk to us about a, a guy named, uh, well, whenever I call his name out, there's going to be another word associated with his name. His name is Thomas. He is... Doubting Thomas. That's right. There's so many of you Bible scholars in here. Doubting Thomas. We get this Doubting Thomas uh, idea from this passage of Scripture that we're going to jump to in John chapter 20, starting in verse 24. So if you're joining us uh, right now on the Bible app, all you have to go to is your menu. Go to click on events. If you have your location setting turned on, then you can eat, find Christ's legacy and follow the notes online with us. You can even take your own notes on the phone, or you can just follow along on the screen. But I'm, I'm excited because as we turn to this passage of Scripture, so much has already taken place. I mean, think about it. The resurrection, Mary goes to the tomb of Jesus to try to 
to honor him, to visit the tomb. And, and when she's there, what, what's going on? The angel of the Lord is sitting on a stone and it's rolled away. And she has this conversation with the angel and Jesus isn't there. Amen, somebody? And she runs back and she tells, she tells Peter and John that Jesus isn't there. Now, I, I love this passage of scripture because when we read it in the book of John, you know, first of all, you know you have a clue that you're reading out of the book of John, first of all, because it says you're reading the book of John, okay? But if you didn't have a, a, a book title, you know it was the book of John because John always refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, okay? And, and we also know that, that John is the last gospel to be written. He, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, known as the synoptic gospels, wrote their gospels relatively soon compared to John. John wrote his gospel later on in life. And so he's an older guy that's looking back at something. And so he doesn't write in chronological history, but he places things in idea sets but here in this passage of scripture where he's talking about the resurrection of Christ, you kind of get the sense that he's trying to settle, well, um, an argument between him and Peter about who got to the tomb first. Because it says that when Peter heard this, he took off running and John started running after him. But John, and John makes a point to make sure you know this, that John overtook Peter. He beat Peter to the tomb. And then when Peter got there, Peter just went in the tomb first, and then John went in the tomb. And so John's like, yeah, but I, I, I got to the tomb first, man. I got there. I used to be young. I used to be fast, right? But, but John... Is, is saying that he got he gets to the tomb. They get both they get both there, and they look and they they discover something. That not only is Christ not there, but his linens are folded and placed there. That there's no way that Jesus' body is somewhere else because that's what he was wrapped in. That Christ has risen from the dead. And then we find out that um, that later that night, of course, this is all spreading through the disciples and they're all excited, but they're scared because the religious leaders in that area are, are they're scared that they're going to be persecuted because after all, they were Jesus's followers. And so maybe just maybe they were going to meet the same fate that Jesus met. And so they're gathered in a room. They've got the, the windows shut. They got the doors locked. And all of a sudden... Jesus that night is standing right in the midst of all of them. And what does he say? He says, peace be with you. What an amazing passage of scripture. And in that moment, all of the disciples, all their fears, all their worries, all their doubts completely melt away. You can imagine what it must have been like in that room. It must have been ecstatic. I, I just, I can't even, I can't even fathom what they must have been feeling. In John chapter 20, verse 24, we'll read till verse 29. It says, one of the 12 disciples, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, 
we have seen the Lord. I, I want to I continue to read because, because I want us to see the whole picture of what's going on. But just hold, hold that thought. Thomas wasn't with them, but the others were there. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands. Put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time, Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, and watch this, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand in my womb, in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. This morning, I want each and every one of us to understand something very particular about this passage. You see, Thomas had to overcome three barriers in his faith so that he could have faith once again in God. And you and I, we're here today, and perhaps as we read and as we study, maybe you're sitting out there and you're dealing with your own doubts your concerns. You're dealing with your own fears about this gospel message or about Christ. You're wrestling inside of your heart, your mind, and you can't make sense of it all. I want to encourage you to lean in as we ask God to open our hearts and lives to receive not only his word, but to receive faith from it. Amen. The very first barrier that Thomas faced was a barrier of ignorance. <laughs> ignorance. How many know what ignorance is? <laughs> You're not ignorant of ignorance. That's good. Ignorance is, is something that, that each and every one of us face at some point in our lives. But I want you to imagine with me right now uh, a courtroom, okay? I love, I love watching those, um, uh, you know, the courtroom dramas, the, um, uh, you know, I, I asked somebody this morning if they like courtroom dramas, and they said they watch Judge Judy all the time. I'm not going to tell you who it was. That's not what I meant, by the way. But, but I, love, I love watching procedural dramas. It kind of gets me thinking about things. And, and I want you to imagine with me the, this courtroom. And, and in the courtroom, you have the defense lawyer that is, is presenting a case for the jury. He tells them that his client is innocent, but the prosecution is trying to convince them otherwise. And the pr prosecution begins to lay out evidentiary claims this claim and that claim and that claim and all of a sudden the prosecution begins to lay out a pretty convincing case against the defendant and as the defendant just sits there the defendant even starts to wonder sometimes well hey maybe i did do this right it sounds so good 
But the good defense lawyer is not shaken by all the, all the claims, all of the so-called evidence, because he knows something that the rest of the court doesn't. After the prosecution finishes his case, the defense lawyer gets up one last time and says, I'd like, to wa I'd like for everyone to watch this video. And as they play the video, it's crystal clear that the defendant is absolutely innocent. Wow. And it's such an impactful moment throughout the courtroom because no doubts and no questions exist because everyone saw the same thing. And I, in this same way, I kind of see this playing out between T Thomas and Christ. Thomas, seated there with all those doubts, with all those concerns, with a lack of evidence, simply asking questions in the gaps of his knowledge, doesn't add up. And it all seems like it's stacked against the fact that Jesus was resurrected until Jesus himself stands before Thomas and he says, here I am. You see me, you can hear me, and you can touch me. I'm here and I'm resurrected. That's the same situation we see played out in this passage of Scripture. How do you think that it must have felt in that room whenever all the disciples found out that Christ was risen? I mean, if we're going to be honest with each other, you know, it wasn't this... It wasn't this, uh, this holy moment where everyone just stood back amazed and awe. It was this moment where they had cried bitter tears. And then all of a sudden, that person wasn't dead. Christ wasn't dead. They must have been crying tears of joy. They were jumping up and down ecstatic. They, they, were, they were hitting each other saying, I told you. I believed him all along. The room must have been just extremely happy. As a matter of fact, the scriptures tells us that they were filled with joy. John chapter 20, verse 19 through 20 says, That Sunday evening the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of Jewish leaders. They were scared for their own lives even. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them. The, the wounds on his hands and his side, they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. They were filled with joy. You know, there are so, some moments in life where, where the evidence just presents itself and that's all you needed and you are filled with joy. There are rare moments in life that are just so pivotal and so so emotional and so, so incredible that it changes the trajectory of your life. Some studies suggest, and I don't know how they find this out, but psychologists suggest that your life is made up of about seven to eight moments that shape the course of your life. And this is without a doubt one of those moments for many of us, especially the disciples, but even us here today, it changed the course of their life. I was reminded of this whenever I saw a, a, a quote by John C. Maxwell the other day. It kind of made me laugh. He says, 
You cannot overestimate the unimportance of practically everything. <laughs> and I'm so glad that he said practically there, because this is one of those things that you can't overestimate the importance of. But then we get to verse 24. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. I can't imagine what this room must have been going through as they were celebrating Jesus' resurrection. But then Thomas is sitting there, and he has to hear all about it. And the disciples are, are yelling and screaming, and they're, they're so excited. And, and Thomas is left out. And finally, he just has to admit to himself, I'm not going to believe it. I can't believe it until I can see it, until I can hear it, until I can feel it. But the truth of the matter is this. We're all kind of like Thomas in one respect or another. Because you and I, we haven't seen Jesus. Not with our own eyes. We haven't felt Jesus. Not with our own hands. We haven't heard Jesus with our own ears. But we still need evidence of some sort. We, we need something to hold on to, something reliable. And I'm going to be honest with you, this is a generation that needs that kind of evidence. This is a generation that is, that is gripped with doubt, even though they're willing to believe some of the craziest stuff out there. You see, if, if anybody walks up to a person in this generation and says, this is a fact, then that person automatically has credibility to them, even if their fact doesn't fact check, if you know what I mean. And I, I wonder sometimes, by not understanding the facts that surround the resurrection and not believing in the facts surrounding the resurrection, we as Christians don't help others to believe in the way that they would have been willing to believe if they just heard those things. Some of us as Christians are, are actually trapped in a, in a bit of a trap of being a being good without having God. You know, the, the truth is, is that this society is, is a, a society unlike any other on the face of this earth where people are so interested in morality and so interested in trying to be good, but they're trying to get there without a loving and a good God. And I've got news for you, church, and I've got news for you for our culture that you can't be good without God. It is impossible. You can't do it. You can't do it. You see, there is uh, internal dissonance in the way that we believe if you try to be good without God. For instance, it's like a church, I mean, it's like a Christian that chooses not to go to church. It, it just, it doesn't work out. It doesn't make sense. And it causes a person to be riped with doubt. And, and some of that internal dissonance, that internal conflict of belief is presented in, in some of the most straightforward ways. It's like saying, I'm a sinner saved by grace, but... At the same time, I am basically a good person. 
Those are not the same belief sets. You can't believe that you're a good person, essentially, and that you're a sinner saved by grace. You have to understand that you believe either one or the other, but they can't both exist inside of you without creating internal dissonance. I've got, I want to, I want to make sure that everybody knows that we are sinners and that the only way is to be saved by grace. Maybe, maybe there's a, 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 a struggle inside of you. God's word is the truth, but yet at the same time, we believe that we each have our own truths. You, you can't do that. Christ's legacy, you can't have those two beliefs and expect there not to be some kind of dissonance inside. Or, or what about Jesus is the only way to God, but at the same time, all find God in their own way. It, it doesn't work out, folks. And that creates internal dissonance because we don't understand and know the scriptures and so there's ignorance of it. Another way that we struggle sometimes is that we seek faith, or we don't seek faith where others have found faith. We admit to ourselves and to others that, that, uh, that we're looking for faith, but we really don't do anything about it. You've probably heard the old adage, where there's smoke, there's fire, right? Yeah. But it's like seeing smoke and then looking everywhere else besides where the smoke is for the fire. People that have doubts for some reason or another, avoid church, avoid talking to Christians, avoid reading the Bible, yet they will say, I have doubts about God. It's like, hey, listen, you want to know God? Why don't you go to the places where other people know God? How about that? That's pretty good. That's a good idea. You want to increase your faith in worship? You want to feel his presence during worship? Try worshiping. There you go. There it is. Do you want to, do you want to feel love again from other people? You, you, you don't think that you can feel love any longer because you've been hurt in the past? Go to church, fellowship with people. Like, don't just come in and then leave. It's like, stick around, get to know a few people. You'll feel love. It's amazing how that works. You want to you uh, 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 deal with some of the, the inconsistencies, the doubts, the problems with uh, information or how it lines up in the Word of God? Be a part of good teaching. It'll clear it up. Where there's smoke, there's fire. If, you're, if, you're, if you have doubt, go to the place where you'll see the presence of God. You'll feel his love and you'll be instructed by his teaching and then it'll clear up the doubt. And there's another thing that we struggle with. Um, those that, that doubt know the least about God. Have you ever, have you ever heard of a person that, that is reeked with doubt but they know very little about who God is or what he wants to do in their lives. Maybe they conflate different religions and they say, ah, it's just, it, none of it's for me. But I've got, I've got news for you. I studied 
so much because I wanted to be prepared for the most complicated, hard to deal with questions of our faith. And I wanted to be able to share that, the answers with people. And so I got all geared up so that hopefully one day somebody's going to ask me, Pastor John, I need you to help me deal with the problem of sin, the problem of evil. It's a philosophical argument, and I love talking about that. But guess what? Nobody cares about the hard stuff. Everybody ends up asking me the easy questions. I didn't have to go to school to deal with the easy questions that some people ask me. It's like, what about the historicity of the Bible? Well, yeah, it's like the most historically accurate book ever. Next question. Right? Oh, oh, Pastor John, what about the inconsistencies like slavery or or women's equality? It's like, okay, no problem. Hey, uh, the Bible doesn't endorse slavery or inequality in women. Uh, The Bible just simply acknowledges that other cultures have slavery and have inequality of of women. Right? As a matter of fact, uh, there's more slavery going on right now than ever before in the world. Right? Okay. What what about uh, uh, contradictions with modern values like homosexuality? Shouldn't the Bible and shouldn't God's God's law kind of change over the course of time uh, to to deal with the morality of the day? No! (laughs) You know... I've got news for you. We know a lot more about homosexuality and about gender studies like today than we did 10 years ago. And they say there's like, like three, five, 10,000. Matter of fact, I can't get one website to tell me how many genders there are because nobody knows. I do. And, and I want to say this really quick. If, if today's figure wasn't right back then and it keeps changing nobody's and everybody's afraid to tell you what how many there are maybe if it wasn't right 5 years ago it wasn't ever right we can't afford Christ's legacy Christian church to allow our values to constantly change with a culture that is constantly changing their values okay These are easy questions that everybody wants to know. And now you and I, we know. And there are more than that. So if you have doubts because of ignorance, press in and get those answered. The second thing is cynicism. Somebody say cynicism. (laughs) Yeah. There there are people that are cynical by nature. And I've got to tell you, I am not one of those people. I'm like the world's leading optimist. Somebody could sit there and make fun of me and say something bad about me. And I'll be like, well, you're probably right. Uh, but you're saying it for my own good, right? Or, or, or you probably didn't even mean that. You don't know what you're saying. You know, and I can have this wonderful relationship with a person that just hates my guts because I, it just like water off the duck's back, man. Not everybody's like that, I found out. <laughs> because, I, because um, uh, well, I, I'll tell you this right now. Um, just a few months ago, I had somebody come in and, and lead our staff in a personality test. Now, I will not tell you how many cynics that we have on staff, but we got more than one. <laughs> and I love them. 
I love them because they balance me out. I'm like, take the hill. And they're like, uh, that's, a, that's a mountain right there. Uh, have we, uh, did we do a plan analysis for that mountain, Pastor John? And they keep me in line. And I want to I let you know that cynics by nature or cynicism by, by nature is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to be skeptical. It's not a bad thing to, 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 to be worried about the facts and figures. It's not. You balance people like me out. My wife balances me out, right? I am so grateful for her because I get out of balance with the optimism that I have. Uh, you know, it's, it's crazy. But I will tell you this, that Thomas was one of those guys that were cynical by nature. He was just cynical by nature. As a matter of fact, on one occasion, Lazarus, uh, the, uh, Jesus had been touring all around the area, preaching and teaching. And matter of fact, he just about got thrown out of Bethany. The religious leaders wanted to stone him and the disciples at, at Bethany. And so they got out of Bethany and then they turn around, they hear about Lazarus that lives in Bethany that passed away. And everybody is really upset about this. And Jesus says, well, let's, let's go to Bethany. And the disciples say, hey, oh, 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 oh. We, we, just, we just got out of there. Uh, let's, uh, like, let's, let's pray for them. You know, let's not, we don't have to go there. We're going to get killed. And, and you can hear the, the atmosphere. You can hear the, the struggle in their voice because they, they are sad, but they, they want to deal with this stuff that is going on with Lazarus. But just in, in uh, Thomas's nature, John chapter 11, verse 16, many, uh, 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 quite a bit before Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, I'm going to read it in the voice of Eeyore, okay? Because this is what it sounds like. Let's go to and die with Jesus. I mean, this is his nature, and he doesn't disappoint later on. Because Jesus is literally standing up in front of his disciples and saying, I am the way, the truth, and the light. He is telling people that he's going to prepare a place for them, and he'll come again to receive us unto himself, that where he is there, he may be also, we may be also. And if you know him, you know the way. And Thomas interrupts him, and he says, whoa, hey. John chapter 14, 5, no, we don't know, uh, uh, Lord, Thomas said, we have no idea what's going on here. So how can we know the way? <laughs> it's his character. It's his nature. He's a cynic. He wants a Google map dropped over to his phone. <laughs> Show me the way. I'll be glad to go there. Until then, don't know. <laughs> That's just his personality. We don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. See, Thomas was the kind of guy that he feared the worst and was slow to believe. He was acting inside of his own character, and his character reveals something about Christ and his character, that, that Christ wasn't threatened about his doubts. He wasn't scared about his fears. You see, many of us, we know it's doubting Thomas. But we could just as easily put our names in there, couldn't we? Doubting John. Doubting Lloyd. That fits. 
There's a problem, though. That even though we deal with all this skepticism, usually it's because we've been hurt deeply inside. Usually it's because we've been so torn by life's situations, so traumatized in our past that we allow our, our, our heart to, to hurt. Maybe it's not even about allowing our heart to hurt. We can't help but our heart to hurt. And, and, and the truth is if we believe in what Jesus said and it turns out not to be real, I don't, I don't think I can let myself go there again. You know, there's people all through history that have been hurt so much that they're afraid to believe, to have faith. I've got a couple of notable skeptics. There's a guy named Arthur Schopenhauer. He's a 19th century German philosopher. If you ever want to feel less happy, read German philosophy. It'll bring it right down. He went to, he grew up in a Christian home, went to a Christian school, but he couldn't bring himself to believe that there was a loving God. He couldn't believe that there was anything after life or after death, that there was life after death. And he wrote his philosophy out and it's discussed to this day. He's gripped with that kind of pain, that kind of trauma about not being able to wrap his mind around an eternal loving God. Then there's a woman by the name of Madeline O'Hare. You know this person in the 1960s, a, a, a young lady that led the... Um, uh, uh, led legislation to try to get the reading the Bible and prayer out of school. And she was successful. What you may not know is that that O'Hare, she um, she dated this guy during World War II and ended up getting pregnant and having a baby named William. And when she did this, the, she found out that the guy that she was with, he was married and he wouldn't leave his wife for them. It hurt her, it traumatized her so much that later on in life, she, she went on to become an atheist. She, she didn't really feel love. She doubted God, the existence of God. She led in this legislation. She started the, the uh, National Atheist Society. And when she went and filed that legislation, her little boy, William, was listed as the reason why this legislation was na uh, uh, needed. He was the chief plaintiff in the case. That trauma that she felt, that rejection that she had, that was encapsulated in her rejection of God and his love. Ladies and gentlemen, there's so many reasons. There's so many traumas out there in life to be overcome with doubt and disbelief and pain, skepticism, cynicism, that's unreal. So what's yours? What's your trauma? 
The truth of the matter is, is that we probably all, if we looked hard enough, could find a reason not to believe. But ladies and gentlemen, you don't have to look hard to find a reason to believe. There's a God in heaven who loves you. He wants to save you. Would you just give your trauma, your pain, your past to him? You trust him with it and he'll heal you from it. He'll deliver you from it. He'll remove every anxiety, every fear, every doubt. If you allow yourself to be brave enough to step in his presence. And finally, there's this problem of empiricism. It's the final barrier that Thomas overcame to be closer to Christ, to have faith in him. Empiricism is just that, that thing that says, I got to feel it. I got to, I got to use my senses to observe it. And if it's not observable with my five senses, then it's not real. There's a problem with this though, folks. The problem is, is that, that we believe all the time in things that are not sensed with our five senses. Ideas, they're real, but you can't see them, taste them, touch them, smell them. Thoughts are real. The truth is real, but you can't see it, taste it, touch it, smell it. But it's real and it's there and it's true. The truth is, is that there are spiritual truths. And the spiritual truth is that, that our ability to observe the things around us is limited to our ability right here and now. But our spiritual truths help us to understand and interpret a world that is a mystery like life after death, like faith in Christ. The Bible reminds us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so our challenge today is not issued by me. It's not issued by a philosopher or a theologian. Our challenge today is issued by our Savior. You see, Thomas, he believed because he, he saw he was in the presence of Jesus. You and I, our senses can't capture his essence. And Jesus says, then Jesus told him in verse 29, you believe because you have seen me blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Would you stand up with me all over this place? Today, we have the opportunity to stand in the presence of a loving God. We have the opportunity for every doubt, every fear, every anxiety to be wiped away. We have the opportunity to stand before him and have faith 
This morning, if you're dealing with doubt, if you're dealing with indecision, if you're dealing with fear, disbelief, I want to encourage you. You can be in his presence too. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to look around for just a moment as we go into the Lord's presence. Lord Jesus, Lord, allow your Holy Spirit to be in this place. Lord, let your spirit and your presence rest among us, Lord, just like you did with the disciples on that day. They, they experienced you, Lord. So I ask that you would allow us to experience you. Oh, Jesus. With your head bowed and eyes still closed, you're here this morning and you say, Pastor John, I had doubts, I have fears, I have anxieties. I'm a skeptic, but I, I want to believe. And you need God to help you with your unbelief. If that's you, just simply raise your hand. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out. Thank you. I just I want to pray with you. Thank you. I see you. Yes. Thank you. Yes, I see you. Looking all around, I want to believe. Help me. Lord Jesus, you saw these four hands that were lifted. And Lord, you see each and every one of our hearts, Lord, as we lift it up to you. Lord, that you would touch us, that you would change us, Lord, from the inside out, allowing your presence to make an eternal impact on who we are and what we believe. Father, in these moments, Lord, that we've shared together this morning, I pray, God, that our ignorance and our skepticism, our cynicism, Lord, would fall away. And Lord, we would, we would stand amazed at even our belief, our belief in you. Lord, help us, Lord, to find you always, to give others hope. And Lord, help us to continue to do life together. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Be blessed this morning.